Mark, thank you. Thanks especially for that prayer from the Valley of Vision. And uh, that's a resource I want to highly commend to you. Again, it's called the Valley of Vision. I think there's even one out in Eddie's bookcase in the Fellowship Hall. But uh, wonderful things, prayers to read, Puritan prayers to aid you in your uh, time with the Lord each morning. Uh, let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter 12. We want to continue our series that we've been looking at over the past uh, several months. If you uh, happen to come without a Bible, uh, there's a one underneath the chair in front of you somewhere, or uh, uh, pull one up on your phone somehow, but I encourage you to follow along and use the outline on the back of your bulletin to uh, follow through this morning's message, Revelation 12. Uh, 1 through 6, this is the beginning of a whole new section in the book. It's the very center of the book, by the way, the very middle section of the book, and probably the most important section of the book. So let me begin with these first six verses of Revelation uh, chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. For 1,260 days. This is the word of the Lord. His uh, authoritative, inspired, uh, inerrant word. Let's uh, just pause again and ask for the Lord's help as we look into uh, this difficult passage this morning. Help us, O oh God, as we look at a challenging uh, section of your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes by the power of your good spirit who dwells in us. Quicken us to hear and see the truth. I pray you'd help me preach today. Give me a clear mind and a strong voice. Father, be with us in this time and help us, we ask, through Christ. Amen. On September 1st, 1939, uh, Germany, led, of course, by Adolf Hitler and uh, the Nazi party, invaded the country of Poland. Two days later, the Prime Minister of uh, Great Britain, who at that time was a man named Neville Chamberlain, uh, read this sober announcement to the British people over the radio. Chamberlain said, I'm speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and that consequently this country is at war 
with Germany. Very dramatic words to hear in Great Britain at the, at the time. Chamberlain's words, of course, involved uh, Great Britain in a conflict not only with Germany, but eventually also with Italy and Japan. A massive, massive conflict that would last for the next four and a half years, a conflict that you and I refer to as World War II. Paul's words in Ephesians 6 that we read just moments ago inform you and me in a similar way that a state of war exists between the followers of Jesus and the kingdom of darkness. A state of war exists between Christ, his holy angels, and his followers on the one hand, and Satan and his demonic forces and the evil system of this world on the other hand. Ladies and gentlemen, we are at war. It's something that I think we tend to forget. Uh, something we rarely consider as we go through life day by day is to recall that we are engaged in a uh, conflict un of, a, of a universal scale. Uh, a conflict that takes place uh, in the heavenly places, uh, in the spiritual realm. That's why we so often lose sight of it, because this conflict is largely invisible, although it does uh, become visible more and more these days. As Mark said, we're, we read a familiar passage. We're fairly familiar with Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, uh, Paul's description of this conflict uh, that he describes in just 11 verses. But we're less familiar with this part of God's word um, from the book of Revelation. And what Paul describes in just 11 verses, John expands to 55. And in fact, he gives us a much fuller description of this conflict, and he uses the next three chapters to describe the holy war that you and I, as followers of the Lord Jesus, are involved in. A description of this holy war is what we find here in these next three chapters. We've studied the first three sections of Revelation already, or cycles as I've called them. We've uh, looked at the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and then following that we looked at the seven seals, uh, seals that uh, uh, an angel breaks open and the red X indicates that that section ends with the day of the Lord. Uh, then just last Sunday we concluded the seven trumpet judgments, and that section also ends with the description of the day of the Lord. Each of these three uh, periods covers the same time frame from uh, the time between uh, the first advent of Christ and the second advent, between his first coming and his second coming. And what John's been doing throughout this book and continues to do is just to uh, reach the end, like we did last week, and he comes back to the same period of time and he'll start again, but from a different point of view. The next section, uh, the Holy War, will also end in a description of uh, the day of the Lord when Christ returns and judges. And if you want to see how 
this holy war we're in. Turns out you can flip to chapter 14, not now, uh, and uh, see the end of it. Uh, but this is, uh, this is how Revelation has unfolded so far and will continue to unfold. And all the rest of the sections will also end in a description of the day of the Lord. That's how we know John is writing in cycles, why he's covering the same period of time again and again and again. But this section, Bible scholars refer to as the most important section of the entire book. And we tend not to think of it this way. Uh, describing this middle section, Derek Thomas says, indeed, in some ways it can be thought of as the key to the entire book. Another says the visions in chapter 12 form the theological heart of the entire book. They say this that because these three chapters give us a, a behind-the-scenes look at the forces behind world events. Chapters 12 through 14 lift the curtain to reveal the holy war going on behind the scenes of history. And we get these three chapters, uh, a grasp on them, we look at the world and say, well, no wonder. Uh, Revelation really does help us understand the age we live in. Uh, one man, Dr. Doug Kelly says, Revelation 12 is like taking a telescope and taking the big view all across the heavens. The first six verses of chapter 12 give us a vision of what the history of the world means. The Apostle John intends that you and I will understand our lives and times in terms of this larger picture of a cosmic battle between God and the devil, between good and evil. I think that last sentence is great. Very well said. The Apostle John intends that you and I will understand our lives and times in terms of this larger picture of a cosmic battle between God and the devil, between good and evil. That's our goal over these next three chapters, is to grasp the reality of the spiritual conflict that we're in and to understand our lives and times in terms of the holy war, to, to comprehend uh, like Neville Chamberlain said to Great Britain, that a state of war exists between us, between us who follow the Lord Christ and the kingdom of darkness, on the other hand. So to start off this section, to introduce us to this cosmic battle, John begins by describing three of the main characters in this holy war. In our passage today, he introduces three main characters that we see throughout this chapter, chapter 12. And the first main character that he introduces is the woman. Uh, the first main character that John reveals in this holy war is a dazzling woman in appearance, a woman dazzling in her appearance that uh, appears to John in the sky. Let me mention three things about this woman that we see in verses 1 and 2. And the first is her symbolic nature. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that, it's, it's not an actual woman uh, that John sees in the sky, but a sign or a symbol. Look at verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. The word sign that John uses there in that very first phrase refers to a distinguishing mark by which something is, is known. In other words, the woman stands for something, uh, or she represents something. Uh, she is a symbol of something. 
And this reminds us that this is how John has been speaking throughout this book. For the most part, he's been describing things in symbols to us. Uh, he's been describing things that stand for something, that represent something. And the reason John has been primarily speaking in symbols it's because that's how the Lord revealed these things to John, symbolically. If I could, I want to remind you of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. So right out of the gate, we read this phrase, this verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. That underlined phrase, made it known, it's the verb form of the word sign. According to one man, this term has the notion of symbolizing something or signifying or communicating by symbols. And so what that means is John is receiving this revelation from God that God communicates to him in signs, in symbols, just like uh, God communicated future events to King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Put on your uh, thinking cap and think back that far, and you see the, remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's great visions that Daniel had to interpret for him. And so in the same way, God communicates what must soon take place to John through symbols. It's a, it's a key to understanding the book of Revelation, I think. And, and, and it's a key, and it's important to talk about this because our main rule of thumb is not to interpret the Bible as symbols, but to take it, what? Literally, right? Uh, we take the words uh, as what it says is what it means. And that's the way we should normally read the Bible. Uh, we should take the words at face value understand them with their normal meaning. But this verse, at the very beginning of the book, the Spirit of God warns us and, and gives us a heads up that the elements of this book are for the most part symbolic. And that we don't look at them in quite the same way. They stand for something else. They represent something else. They are symbols. So, for example, the Reformation Study Bible that some of you are holding this morning, in, in the introduction to the book of Revelation, it, it talks about how vital this is to grasp the book. Listen to what it says. The, the popular approach to Revelation, interpret literally unless you are forced to interpret symbolically, should be turned on its head. Instead, the statement about the book's precise mode of communication in chapter 1, verse 1, indicates that its overall character is symbolic so that the preceding rule of thumb should be reversed to say, interpret symbolically unless you are forced to interpret literally. Better put, the reader is to expect that the main means of divine revelation in this book is symbolic. Well, that's what we're reminded right here in this opening phrase of chapter 12. John tells us a great sign appeared, a woman. It wasn't an actual woman, but a symbol. She represents something. She stands for something else. Well, well then what does she symbolize? What does she stand for? Well, we discover this as we move on uh, to the second thing, and that's her identity. 
uh, we discover what she represents, what she stands for. As we go on in verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, how does that help? Uh, how does that help us identify? That, admittedly, it's a very unusual description, is it not? It is. Uh, very apocalyptic in its vocabulary. It at least indicates she's dazzling and beautiful. But what, what does she represent? Well, to find out, we look back to the Old Testament scriptures because that's where John brings his images from. He doesn't look ahead to the future, but he looks back into the pages of the Old Testament. John is well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, and that's what he's drawing on here. Uh, when we look to the Old Testament, we find a very similar description in the account of Joseph's life. Now, stay with me, bear with me, think back to the life of Joseph when he was a very young man, I mean a very young man, before he learned to keep his mouth shut. You know, you don't have to say everything that's on your mind. And Joseph didn't know that. Uh, and so one morning he gets up, and before his dad has even had his first cup of coffee, he comes out with the dream that he's had the night before. And this is what he says. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Words he probably should have kept to himself. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The sun and moon and stars in Joseph's dream referred to his parents and his brothers, the nation of Israel in its earliest stages. So the woman of verse 1, clothed with these very same things, undoubtedly represents Israel, but faithful Israel. True Israel. Old Testament saints that would give birth to Christ, the Messiah. Not all Israel, Paul says in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is true Israel, faithful Israel, spiritual Israel. We'll see her come up again in verse 6. We discover her identity. This woman is the faithful covenant children of God. But then third, we see her conflict uh, and we see this constant state of conflict between the woman and Satan in verse 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Look at the intensity of her pregnancy there. John says crying out or crying in a loud voice. It, it denotes shouting, shrieking, or even screaming during her birth pains. Sure, Pam has heard plenty of this in her experience as a nurse. And the following phrase calls it agony, a term that can refer to intense uh, pain and often torture or torment. What is this intense, agonizing, and torturous pregnancy represent? Well, the first promise of the Messiah, this will be familiar to you, comes in Genesis 3.15. 
where the Lord said to the serpent who deceived Eve, I will put enmity, in other words, hatred, between your offspring and her offspring. Uh, He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this agonizing pregnancy we hear described in verse 2 reflects the serpent's hatred toward the woman and his attempt to prevent her from producing the seed that would crush his head. The pregnancy describes Satan's constant attempt to block the birth of the Messiah. Listen to uh, Dr. Kelly again. All the wars and struggles of this world history and our little part in it go back to the holy enmity the holy war between the seed of this first woman and the seed of the evil one. The seed of the woman is passed down for scores of generations. Old Testament Israel was pregnant with Christ for thousands of years. Israel was a womb from which the Messiah would be born. The history of Israel is a struggle to bring forth Christ. Consider some of the forms that that conflict took. Uh, Think about Cain and Abel. Satan, no doubt, influencing Cain's hatred of Abel, attempting to to kill the seed of the woman through Abel's murder. Consider Pharaoh's attempt to wipe out male sons of Israel in Egypt, and, and no doubt another attempt by Satan to blot out the line of the Messiah. Uh, Satan encouraged Saul to kill David, uh, wiping out the Davidic line, the Messiah's line. Think of Haman in the book of Esther, who uh, hatched a plot to exterminate every Jew in the Persian Empire. And so what we're looking at here in verse 2, this description of uh, this agonizing birth is the woman's agonizing effort to, to give birth to the Messiah and Satan's ongoing attempts to prevent that from taking place. Again, one man says the author highlights this text in the period of Jesus' birth to stress the severe conflict Satan has stirred up and continues to stir up against God and his people. So this is the third thing we see, the conflict that the woman endures from the hand of the evil one. So this is our first main character, the woman. She'll come up again in just, just a, a few verses. We'll see her again this morning. Uh, a dazzling woman representing faithful Israel that John sees in the sky, and these three things related to her, her symbolic nature, her identity, and her conflict. Well, there's a second character that John introduces in the Holy War, and that is the dragon, who comes next in verse 3, that serpent of old, the devil. And I want to say three things about this character as well. Again, let me just mention Uh, Briefly this time, it's symbolic nature. Like the woman before, this character is symbolic as well. Again, verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. As with the woman, this is not an actual dragon, but a sign, a symbol. He stands for something else. He represents something else. What? Or who does the dragon stand for? What does he symbolize? This one's not hard to figure out. If you just glance down to verse 9, John reveals it. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. The dragon represents the evil one. Uh, It is a symbol of Satan, that ancient 
serpent. So this is another symbol. Uh, our adversary, the devil, is represented by this great red dragon. But John goes on to describe the characteristics of this dragon, and he mentions four things about this dragon, four characteristics. First, that it is intent on killing. It is intent on killing. This awful beast is characterized by its desire to kill. John says, John describes it as a great red dragon, and from that color red, we draw out this point. Uh, red is often used in connection with warfare. Uh, back in the second seal, uh, a bright red horse was released that brought warfare on the earth. Sometimes red is associated with the blood of the martyrs, believers who've been killed for their faith. So this dragon is intent on taking human life. This is, of course, no surprise because Jesus mentions this very thing to the Pharisees in John 8. Listen to what he says. He says to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is in the middle of their attempt to kill him. And then two chapters later, Jesus says about him, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So the dragon is, to begin with, intent on killing. Again, this is no surprise. Second, John says that the, the dragon is evil in its nature. As verse 3 goes on to say, a great red dragon with seven heads. What in the world is that about? Seven heads connects this to a mythological creature from the ancient world called Leviathan or Rahab. And sometimes writers of the Old Testament would refer to this seven-headed creature in the things they wrote. For example, Psalm 74 mentions this. Uh, David says of the Lord, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. Sometimes writers of the Old Testament use this dragon-like creature to refer to Israel's enemies. A pharaoh was referred to as a dragon. As Jeremiah writes, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy, prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus the Lord God, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams. Isaiah does the same thing. Uses this image of a seven-headed uh, sea monster to refer to the Assyrians. Isaiah says it this way. In that day the Lord uh, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. If you're holding an ESV study Bible, the ESV defines this uh, sea creature as an ancient symbol of evil in all its monstrous horror. This is attested in um, myths of the ancient world that describe a powerful dragon-like deity. And then the Reformation Study Bible says the Old Testament employs this image of a multi-headed serpent to denote evil autocratic powers. And so when John uses this image of seven heads, he's referring to this mythological creature, but what he's saying is that this dragon is tremendous 
a tremendous force of evil, uh, like that sea creature of the ancient world, the dragon is incredibly evil. Not only is he evil, John goes on to describe his power. That's his third characteristic. Uh, he is incredibly powerful. Not only does he have seven heads, it goes on to say uh, in verse 3, with seven heads and ten horns. Horns refers to animal horns, a symbol of power in the Old Testament. David writes of this often. Uh, he says uh, in Psalm 75, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. That's the Lord speaking. In other words, I will eliminate the power of the wicked. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. I will strengthen them, in other words. One man says, ten horns points to the mighty power of the dragon. The thought may be that of the immense vitality of such an animal. It is very hard to kill. And we see this further down in verse 4. It says, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Most likely a reference to the angels who joined Satan in his rebellion. A third of the stars refers to the large number that Satan swept along with him into rebellion. The dragon's immensely powerful. And then fourth, and take note of how I've written this, uh, John says, fourth, that this dragon is sovereign. But note I've put an asterisk by the word. And the reason I've done that is to, to say that the dragon's sovereignty is limited. It's not complete sovereignty like we see in Jesus Christ earlier in the book, who is sovereign over all things. The dragon's sovereignty is, is, extends only to his realm. It's, it is sovereign over the evil world system, the forces of darkness, and those that have joined his rebellion against God. And, and we see this in the very last phrase of verse uh, 3. A, a great red dragon with seven heads, uh, ten horns, immensely powerful, and on his head seven diadems. Those were Royal crowns, uh, uh, um, uh, they stress the, the fullness and completeness of his control over his realm. He has complete control over the evil system of this world and all those in rebellion against God. Jesus said in John chapter 12, he describes Satan as the ruler of this world. In 1 John chapter 2, we read this, we know that we are from God and the whole world lives in the, lives in the power. Let me start over. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Uh, Paul says that you and I were formerly under his authority. In Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the fourth characteristic we see of this dragon is that it is sovereign in a limited sense, sovereign over its own realm, rules the fallen world and those in rebellion against God. This is the character of the dragon. 
Smithsonian Magazine uh, issued an article about various uh, carnivorous plants. Probably the one most familiar to most of us is the Venus flytrap. Uh, described that one in its article. There are others, of course, and one of the lesser-known carnivorous plants is called the pitcher plant. You see it looks like a trumpet or a tube uh, open at the top. The article says the pitcher plant, for example, uses a sneaky method to attract its prey, a method that quickly reminds us of the methods of Satan. Often this plant is brightly colored, mimicking flowers. Sometimes a trail of nectar-secreting glands starts at ground level and leads up the outside of the leaf, summoning ants from the ground to the trap above. The author says the hungry ant or other potential meal is lured to the mouth of the trumpet, so crowded with nectar glands it may be wet. But below this mother load of sugar, the interior of the pitcher tube is waxy and slick. This is the start of the plant's slippery slope where victims lose their footing and slide into the increasingly narrow tube. Down inside, the inner wall of the leaf is lined with glands that secrete digestive enzymes, which trickle down and collect in the bottom of the trap. The insect slips lower to where the surrounding wall is lined with downward pointing hairs that discourage exit. In some species, the bottom fluid contains an ingredient to stun the struggling captive. There may even be a wetting agent that helps soak and drown the victim. And then, commenting on this article, someone says, Satan is the master deceiver. He sugarcoats the way to ruin with illicit pleasure. Once a person falls into the trap, Satan makes it extremely hard to escape. He stuns the victim. Then, alas, he digests the victim's soul. So I know I've been sharing information that's, that's not new or unfamiliar to you uh, as we talk about the dragon. Uh, before I even started, you probably could tell that it was Satan. Uh, but as I've described him and mentioned these things that, again, we're familiar with from other passages of Scripture, we kind of just nod off on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I want to draw out to you from this picture of the dragon in the Holy War is the awful reality that Satan is out to destroy you. He is intent on killing. And he will take your very life if he can. This is true of believers and unbelievers alike. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is hideously evil. He is powerful. For believers, his power has been broken. We'll see that next Lord's Day. 
He is far stronger than any of you. He's far stronger than me. We are no match outside of the power of Christ and His cross. Don't try to take Him on in your own strength. He rules His whole realm. And so what you need to understand is that thing that tempts you, that thing that's going to give you just that little bit of pleasure, his design is to kill you with it. That thing that that you think, oh, come on. (laughs) What could happen? Well, watch Fail Army if you don't know what could happen, for Pete's sakes. What could happen? Well, let me. This reveals his, his motive behind everything he does it is to exterminate you. And I say this to, I don't know, whoever is here today needs to hear it. I say it to high school and middle school students that the sin at times looks especially appealing. Temptation looks good. And you think of how satisfying it would be. Like the sugar that's just wet around the trumpet plant. plant, uh, The pitcher plant, rather. And the design is to suck you into destruction. I say to you men, the lure of temptation online, suicidally appealing. Just one click, 15 minutes, what's the big deal? I'll tell you the big deal. is The devil is out to destroy You and your marriage. This is not a Sunday school picnic we're in. This is a holy war. And the enemy wants nothing more than to eliminate you because you are his enemy if you know Jesus Christ. He hates you and wants you and wants to destroy you. Clear as black and white. Well, this is, this is the characteristic of the dragon. I want to point out one more thing, and that's his, uh, John goes on to tell us next. Uh, third, he describes his ambition Now, he wants to destroy you, but he has an overriding ambition above all that. And we see this uh, in the second half of verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And I've described this in connection with the woman. His primary purpose throughout Old Testament history was to destroy the woman's seed and to wipe out the line of the Messiah to prevent him from being born so that her seed could not crush 
his head. This seems to describe uh, events around the birth of Christ. Uh, and I, I believe it's a reference to Satan's attempt to kill Jesus after he was born. You'll think that uh, that attempt came through primarily King Herod. And this verse in Matthew describes Herod's uh, agitation. Uh, when Herod the king heard this, the news that, uh, <laughs> where's the newborn king of the Jews? He's been born. We've come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And that's putting it mildly. So troubled that he launched an effort to exterminate all the male children of uh, Bethlehem, two years old and under. That's a little stronger than being troubled. No doubt Satan planted uh, thoughts of fear and jealousy in the mind of Herod, prompted him to wipe out these little boys. Where else could such a hideous plot have come from but from the mouth of the dragon? Satan's purpose, uh, we see his ambition was to kill the Son of God and completely foil God's plan to save sinners. Uh, this is his ambition overall. So, we've seen the woman, the first main character of this uh, holy war, this cosmic drama, but not drama in the sense of made up. It is real. So the woman, the dragon, and then finally the hero is is introduced third in the third character John introduces is the child capital C. John goes right on to identify him for us in verse five. She gave birth to a male child. Uh, think of Isaiah seven fourteen. Uh, Your wife will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. There can be no other child than the child uh, described in Psalm 2, uh, which says you shall break them with a rod of iron, the father speaking to the son, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's repeated in Revelation 19 at the return of Jesus Christ. These same uh, terms from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. John identifies him right off the bat as the Christ child. The second thing John reveals about the child is his success. He accomplished his earthly mission. He conquered. He is the conqueror. Uh, look at verse 5 as it continues. The second half of verse 5 says, But her child was caught up to God in the, his throne. This is an extremely condensed version of the life of Christ. Nothing about his birth, life, death, resurrection. It's, it's, it all boils down to his ascension to the Father's right hand where he's seated on the throne. Why would John focus on that? Because that event identifies Jesus as conqueror, as the one who triumphed over the dragon, as the one who conquered sin and death and the devil. The devil has been conquered. Tune in next week for that part. Uh, 
Christ, the conqueror, is revealed in that one short phrase. He successfully redeemed sinners, paying for our sins on the cross. The Father accepted that payment by raising him from the dead. Uh, the Father um, uh, brought him home, snatched him, as he says here. Uh, Jesus ascended as conqueror, now seated at the Father's right hand, ruling all of the universe. Satan's strategy to devour the child completely frustrated by God. We see his success. He ascends to the throne as the conqueror. He successfully fulfills that prophecy from Genesis 3.15, crushing the head of Satan through the cross. And in third, this is where you and I come in, we see his church. It's the third thing John describes about the child is his church. Christ provides for his church throughout this gospel age that we live in. Look at verse 6. Here we find the woman again. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,000 260 days. Since this comes following the successful ministry of Christ, since this follows his conquest of sin, the woman here, as I gave you a hint earlier, must also refer to and include New Testament saints, spiritual Israel, true Israel, as Paul describes it, uh, in Galatians, still represents all of God's covenant people. But now, not only Old Testament saints, uh, but New Testament saints, we've been made partakers of the covenants of promise. Listen to Dr. Joel Beakey. Thus the woman represents the people of God in all ages. She is the embodiment of God's covenant promise to Abraham and his seed that out of his line would come a Messiah who would bring saving blessings to all nations. And then note this, uh, the place prepared for his church, verse 6 says, she fled into the wilderness. This is not a, a desert waste. This is not a place devoid of life. Uh, the wilderness that John mentioned to, to Jewish readers would, would have brought back uh, Memories of their wilderness wanderings. Well, what happened there? It's the place where they were dramatically and utterly and completely dependent on God. And guess what? He provided in the wilderness. He rained bread from heaven for 40 years and nourished uh, the nation of Israel. And so when they flee to the wilderness, it's, it's a place of uttered desperate dependence, but also a place of complete provision. A place where the Lord spoke to them and encouraged them and challenged them. It's, it's, not, it's not unlike Elijah's time in the wilderness. Failing to destroy the Messiah... The, the dragon drives the woman into the wilderness, that place of dependence. 
he turns his attention toward the Lord's covenant people. The church of this child that endures conflict after conflict. And as Christ's church is driven to this place of utter dependence upon him, uh, he provides. He nourishes. He cares. I'm talking about us now. His church, his bride in the wilderness to that place of utter dependence upon Christ where he supplies our needs. And he does this throughout the gospel age. Look at the last, last phrase, nourished for 1,260 days. There, as I mentioned earlier, I think John speaks symbolically throughout the book, and I think the periods of time are symbolic as well. This is mentioned several times. 1,260 days, uh, 42 months, three and a half years, times, time, and half a time that seem to all refer to this gospel age that you and I live in, the time between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus. And what we read is that Christ promises to faithfully nourish and provide for his church in this place of utter dependency throughout this gospel age. For example, the local newspaper of Beatrice, Nebraska, wrote a follow-up on an event that took place on March 1st, 1950. On that day, the pastor went to church that Sunday afternoon to prepare for the evening choir practice. Most choir members would arrive between 7.15 to 7.30 p.m. He then went home for a quick supper, was ready to turn with his wife and daughter when it was discovered the daughter's dress was soiled and needed a change, which in turn must first be ironed. High school sophomore LaDonna had trouble with her geometry problems and had to stay to finish the problem. Usually she would always be earlier for rehearsal. Two sisters were ready to go to church, but the car wouldn't start. They called up the geometry girl to pick them up. Mrs. Schuster, with a small daughter, normally would arrive at 7.20, but that night her old mother needed her, and so she dropped by her mother's. A lathe operator wanted to stop putting off an important letter. I don't know why, he said, and was late. Stenographer Joyce Black, feeling just plain lazy, stayed until the last possible minute. Then she was ready to go when it happened. Machinist Harry Ole was going to take his two boys to choir practice since his wife was away, but somehow started talking with someone, and when he looked at his watch, it was already too late. Pianist Marilyn Paul decided to come one half hour earlier, but after supper she fell asleep and arrived barely on time. Choir director and the mother of the pianist, Mrs. Paul, was late due to her daughter. She had tried unsuccessfully to wake her up before. Two high school girls usually go together, but one was listening to the 7, 7.30 program she was uh, listening to, and that evening broke their usual habit of promptness in order to listen to the end. At 7.25 p.m. in Beatrice, Nebraska, 
West Side Baptist Church blew up. Its roof crushed in and its walls fell down due to leaking natural gas. But the choir members were all late. And this had never happened before. Now that's a very dramatic example. And in ways much similar, uh, uh, much less dramatic, we see in verse 6, Christ nourishes His church in the wilderness, which is where we are. Provides for it, cares for it, nourishes it. This is the third character in the holy war, the hero, the child. John identifies him, describes his successful earthly ministry, and then mentions his church in his provision. So friends, we are at war. A state of war exists between us and the kingdom of darkness. We are at war with Satan, his demonic forces, and the evil world system that he rules. And John intends for you and I to understand our lives in light of this holy war going on behind the scenes. And so he introduces this holy war to us this morning by by describing these three main characters to us, introducing them to us. First, the woman, the covenant people of God, believers from all ages. The dragon, our adversary, the devil, that ancient serpent out to destroy us. And the child, Jesus, the conquering Messiah, who nourishes and sustains his church. Let me pray for us as we conclude. We are grateful, Christ Jesus, for the hint, the glimpse we've already seen in this part, that you have conquered the dragon. Thank you, Jesus, that through your death on the cross, you defeated our ancient foe. And now, Savior, we pray by your indwelling Spirit and by his power, that you would give us grace to resist his subtle temptations, the sweet and sticky things he attempts to lure us into in order to destroy us. I pray, Father, that you would protect your saints as we walk through this wilderness period of the gospel age, that as promised in verse 6, we would experience the bread of heaven, Jesus, your Son, given to ransom sinners. Strengthen us through your grace. Uh, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen.